Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FARRELL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. As you probably already know, I'm Matt Dwyer. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you're a first-time listener, hey, welcome. Old-time listeners, thanks for hanging in there for all these... Uh, I don't even know how many episodes we have now. It's near 140. I know that. I know that much. Um, if you haven't listened to the show, it is what the title implies there. I just have a loose-formed conversation with somebody. Uh great people uh you know artists musicians sometimes uh weird 60s radicals uh but they're not weird or radicals really maybe everybody else is the one who's on the outside and they're correct right i don't know today's guest is uh a great uh actor and a hilarious dude dan back at all uh you've seen him on veep he's uh also on legit which i was late to the party for uh it's on netflix as he mentions during this episode and uh, it's like, uh, it's, I don't know, man. It's one of the funniest things, I think, to be on television in a thousand years. It's it's uh, dark, it's uh, truthful, and it's really funny. And Dan Beckadol is fucking really good on the show, as he is on all shows. Uh, and it's a great conversation, so I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, I'm I'm sitting here in my kitchen. It's a gloomy day. A lot of people don't think of that in L.A., that, but we get uh, some really gloomy days, especially as June approaches, even though June's a couple months away. They, we have this thing we call June gloom, and I'm struggling with a cold, and uh, so I'm. it's putting me in a funk. I'm in a funk, everybody. And I, I don't think people think of people in L.A. in funk, because I think they just think we sit out in cafes and frolic around the beach, and uh, that 
we all look good without a shirt on. <laughs> and uh, I'm not. I don't look good without. I. I don't look. I. You know. I've gotten. I've. I've. I've developed hair in certain places on my arms. Like I have that hair on the back and weird side of my arms that looks like the guy that you see in like an old movie who's wearing a, a like a stained uh, a tank top or t-shirt and he's like yelling out his window or he's a cabbie. I got that hair on my arm. Does that make sense? <laughs> the hair I have on my arms. Um, but that, Hey, you know what? That's, that's the forties. That's how it goes. This is uh, the hair sprouts up in strange areas and suddenly things hurt that you didn't know. Uh, I pulled my neck getting out of an Uber a few weeks ago. Not even, like, strenuously. Just the average getting out of a car and bammo, something hurt. Just the way it goes. And, uh, you know, life life is... I think I'm sick because I'm in a constant state of stress. Uh, you know, I got married. I, my, the wife is pregnant. Uh, the employment that I had that was... Uh, you know, I do show busy stuff. I do... Uh, I tour and do stand-up. But when I'm not doing that, I bartend. And that has been a, a steady form of life... Uh, for 10 years, and I found out that the place is closing, and it's just been, you know, who hires who hires a guy in his mid-40s in Los Angeles? You know, uh, it's, I, I you know, I'm, I'm at the state where I'm, like, going to be working at a, I'm like, am I going to be working security at a Target? Am I going to be that guy bagging groceries at the, you know, because you've had that, I've had that where I'm like, like some older dude is bagging your groceries and you're just like, what went wrong? <laughs> it's like, what was it? Was it drugs, sir? Did you, are you, are you on a parole? Are you on parole? Is this like your halfway house work? What do you, why are you, what choices did you make? <clears throat> but sometimes you don't make choices, you know, uh, and things just sometimes go off. I heard a woman in the dog park a couple years, well, it was a while ago. But she was saying, like, if you're in your, like, if you're in your, uh, you know, 30s and you're working in a, in a fast food restaurant, that's, that's, something went wrong. That's your fault. And it's like, yeah, it's not. You know, there's plenty of dudes who work in the uh, steel mills and those closed and they're just keeping their families fed in their, their, their houses, the roofs over their heads. But we have such a uh, classist, uh, you know, poor, it's, you're, you're ugly if you're poor. We don't like poor people in this country, and it's their fault because this is bootstraps America. You could, you know. But the thing is, is I, I my whole life I never owned bootstraps to pull myself up from. You know, I always just had some shitty Chuck Taylors that cost ten dollars that now are like forty dollars. But you know, those became popular because the punk rockers were poor and they wore them because that's all they could afford. And then the dumb fuck kids in the suburbs want to wear them, so the guys at Converse go, "Hey, let's chuck these uh, Chuck Taylors up to forty bucks." And then the punk rockers go, well, now what do we wear? And, you know, they go barefoot or whatever they do these days. I don't... <laughs> nah, I got a cold. I got a cold. I don't deserve this cold. I think that sums it up for my... I'm, like, I'm at a crossroads because I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, I have this kid on the way, <clears throat> which is great. Something I never thought I would do. I'm really excited about it. I was shopping for baby clothes yesterday. Uh, okay, granted, they were Chicago Cubs baby clothes. Uh, but, hey, I, I want to put that horrible thing on my kids. Actually, I, I think the Cubs are going to be fine. But that's the whole, another point. But it's like, you know, you're, I'm like, Jesus, what am I going to have time to do? I think my life now will be baby, baby work, 
if I'm lucky, sleep. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll keep doing the podcast, but I'm like, what? Like, there's all these life questions of like, is my, there are certain aspects of my life done? Am I done as a selfish asshole human being? Because I've been, a, I have been very selfish my entire life. I've been a drunken, selfish, fat pig who did what he wanted and barely ever cleaned his apartment and occasionally used a pizza box as a pillow. And now these days are done. I And I know people who uh, still get like, you know, rip roaring, drunk all the time with their, like they're, they're not like they have a kid. It's like, yeah, my roommate who has to come and deal with, uh, deal with me when I come home drunk. It's like, no, you have a kid. Like, I'm like, I got to get my shit together. And maybe I haven't done some things in my life to have my shit together. It's a very delay. My stupidity has delayed many things. I mean, you know, I'm not as I'm not that drunk guy anymore. I've not been that guy for a while. I've been pretty well. I've been on a better road for a while. Selfishness, and then you know what's interesting about selfishness is that that's what my conversation with Dan back at all starts off with, and so we will enter into the conversations with Matt Dwyer with Dan back at all, who uh, you know from legit and Veep and all kinds of other magical things. Dan back at all, everybody. Like at 46, I'm like looking, because we're the same. Do you, are you looking back at your life and being like, what the fuck was wrong with me? Well, I, thankfully, I did a bunch of work on what was wrong with me and went, oh, I see. It's just selfishness and self-centeredness and how do I fucking <laughs> change it? How do you stop being selfish? I don't know how you stop being selfish. I know that when I feel selfish, I have to do the contrary action of, okay, let me do something. I mean, like, literally, my kids will say, Papa, do you want to play with me? And the answer is... No, I don't want to fuck. I want to sit here on the couch and look at Twitter. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. That's the fucking, that's the truth. And, but it's, it's my kids. So I have to, otherwise I'm just perpetuating the fucking cycle. So I go, yeah, sure. And I get up and like, truthfully, I'm, if the kid had any sense, he'd go, fuck you, dude. You don't want to play with me. Don't play with me. You know, but he's four. So he doesn't get that yet. But so that's the only way I've been able to get out of it is just practicing the contrary shit. It's like, I want to say, why are you doing that to my wife? And instead I go, nothing. I just say nothing. <laughs> and then I watch as nothing happens. You know, it's like, because I used to say every fucking thought that came to my head. Because yeah. it's important. This shit needs to be heard, you know. And it got me in, uh, I won't say it necessarily got me in trouble. I mean, I think working at the Second City was the perfect place to be. A pain in the ass. You sort of have to be there. I think so. Here's the problem. Now, lately, I've been listening to, um, I listen to you, I listen to Mick, I listen to Jimmy Corain's podcast. Jimmy's great. I love Jimmy. And, and, and I think that, you know, <laughs> Jimmy's so willing to dump his own shit on the table that people are often willing to dump their shit on the table. And lately, I've been listening to these podcasts. I just listened to one he talked to Kelly Leonard, and I went, I don't know this guy at all. I never had a conversation with this guy. I worked with this guy and was convinced that I hated this guy. Never had a conversation with him. And when Jimmy's sitting there having this conversation with him, I'm, it's, it's dawning on me. I never talked to this guy. I don't know where he came from, what his qualifications were. And it, I just I, assumed he's in charge. He doesn't know what he's doing, you know? And they talked about how the Second City needs people that come in and are willing to fight authority and all that. And I thought, 
Well, I kind of like quietly in the back went, these guys are fucking idiots. But I never went to them and said, you guys need to change this shit. I just sat there quietly. The only statement I ever made was punching a wall and quitting. <laughs> that was it. And then I quit. And that was it. I didn't stick around to try to change something. They said, sit down. Let's talk. What do you want to change? And I went, no, fuck you. Too late. You had your chance. And they went, chance for what? And I went, ah, see, you're so clueless. And then I fucking left. <laughs> You know, so no wonder nothing gets accomplished. A lot of the greats went out that way, though. I think that was Bill Murray's same thing. I hope that was Bill Murray's thing. I know it was Bill Jim Murray. Belushi's thing. That's yeah. not great company. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Rob. Story I heard is Murray took a guy out to the alley who was that's, heckling and that's beat him up. Heard. Yeah, we heard. I heard it was in that stairway off of main stage. Oh yeah. You know. I, yeah. It was a it was a guy in the heckling in the audience, and so he came out and was like, "Hey, hey, man, hey!" And the guy was like, "Hey, the." The dude from the stage wants to talk to me. So we went off in the fucking hallway and Bill beat him up. That's the story. <laughs> now, who knows? But, I mean, in the old Second City kind of encouraged that, I feel, the bad-ass stuff. Yeah, but also you look at it and you go, and, I, you know, I don't want this whole thing to be about that. If, yeah. I, if we were going to talk about that, I would want to talk about how the only reason I wound up working there was because of you. That's what I would want to talk really? about. Really? Dude. I, wait, you wound up working there because of me? I got a job. I had a, I was taking the, the Second City Conservatory classes, and Martin DeMott, you know, was a fantastic teacher, but also liked young men. Oh, yeah. He right. Was, I mean, like, he liked, it, I don't he, think it's a secret that he was gay, right? No. Okay. I mean, when I was young, he, he creeped me out a couple times. Okay. Well, he wasn't into me, but he was into one of my classmates. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Anybody who's like a creeper is never into me. That's just the thing. I can't attract creepers, but anyway, Your time he, will come. Not to speak ill of the uh, the um, the the deity, uh, the dead deities, but you know he had he had kind of a thing for this classmate of mine, and so he goes, "I can get you a job," and he got him a job at Bizco. It was Chris. Do you remember Chris was working there early? On? Chris Pegg was a guy that was yeah. Working there oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Chris. Oh yeah. And Chris was kind of like booking these gigs, and you were writing, and Deb was writing. And some guy named Mike Cool was writing. Oh, yeah. That was his name. My. Mike Cool. No, not Michael Cool. K-U-H-L. But another guy. Oh, a young really? black kid named Mike Cool. M-Y-C-O-O-L. Was his name bullshit? It must have been. I think his name was bullshit, yes. But anyway, so, uh, and Chris got me a gig on one of the workshops or something. And Joe kind of took a liking to me, and then I went. Out, <laughs> we went out and did a gig together, the worst fucking gig in the history of the world. Do you remember that one? We were in I, I don't think, know, I Austin, was, Texas, I think. I was a real... Yes, I do, vaguely. Me, I, you, Brian Boland, I think Deb, I think yeah. Leslie Stone, Ed Furman's wife, was uh, doing the lights on the thing, and she called it. She said, that's it, we're fucking out of here. And we quit mid-gig because they were some drunken dude, you, you and... Brian Bolin were in the middle of a scene. Oh, Rachel Dratch was on that show. And the, guy walked, him, and the yeah. guy walks up and goes, it's my birthday. And he started toasting to like that was a it. thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of a scene. Yeah. Yeah. That... Anyway, <laughs> what happened was I was hanging out up there a lot doing business theater, doing workshops and that bullshit. Right. And you guys were writing them. And I was fucking hemorrhaging. I had no money. And I was making $100 a week or something doing these gigs. And it was the dream come true. And I was painting the walls of the communications offices for Joe Keefe. Joe said, you need a job? I'll get you a job. Go to Home Depot, get some paint, paint these walls. So I was painting the walls and Kevin Dorf came up, caught me like carrying a ladder and he goes, the fuck are you doing? I said, I'm 
painting the walls. Oh, but, and, and Dorf, you know, for those who don't know, went on to write at Conan forever in a day. And now is somewhere else writing forever in a day. You know, successful fucking guy with a good head on his shoulders and was a no bullshit guy. And he said, what are you doing? You're painting fucking walls? If you paint walls, you're going to paint walls here. That's what you're going to do. And I was like, hey, respectfully, I just, I'm in the fucking building. That's what matters to me. Yeah, I don't fully agree with him. I don't fully agree with him because look, it worked. Yeah, you know, I you mean, were, it worked. It worked. I was in the I was in the building. You were considered one of the stars of the joint. Well, I don't know about that, but I know that that when Greg Mills was touring, this was that exact same time Greg Mills was touring, got a gig on a commercial, and they had a bone to pick with Greg over whatever, and they said, "All right, fine, you you go do your commercial, you're fired." And he goes, "Well, I can't not take the commercial." And he said, "Then I guess you've made your choice." And that kind of stuck in my head, like. Oh, this is the kind of place that if you get an opportunity that's not theirs, they're going to fucking throw you to the curb. I don't know if that was true, but that's what I thought at the time. And um, so they were looking for someone to replace him. And you said, you get fucking back it all. You got to hire back it all. Boy, my memory sucks. You don't remember that? I was pretty boozed out in those days. You didn't tell me this. (laughs) They told me this. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm sure I did. I mean, I was a huge fan of yours. You did. You did that. Wow, I'm a great guy. So I have to, I don't know. I, I wasn't about to say thank you. I was going to say, so I have you to blame. Oh, that's more accurate. It's uh, yeah, it's it's weird. People have such uh, mixed uh, memories of Second City. Yeah, well. And it's like I had my bullshit there, too, but it's like um, it's an institution I'm proud that I was a part of, oh, of in hindsight. I wish that, I mean, here's the thing. I think you started by asking something about, you know, the shit you wish you could change, essentially. And that's one thing I wish I could change. I wish I could have gone into that place with a mind frame or any fucking job ever in my life like I have now. Because I didn't have a mind frame until around 2005 of, all right, let me try to show up on time and be a worker. And let's see how this thing goes. My thing was always, what do you got? Give me, give me what you got. I don't fucking trust you. Don't try to be friendly with me. Don't call us a family. We're not a fucking family. I don't trust my own family. So... You've already struck a nerve, you know? Uh, so that'd be about the only thing I wish I could do is I wish I could have gone in there knowing knowing the big sea change that had happened in what, like 93 or well, something? With like McCain, all that stuff? Yeah, when yeah. all that shit happened and the place changed and you guys were doing River Ants and uh, all the shows that you guys were doing over there uh, on the ETC as well that were different from what used to be done, that same standard shit. It was pretty yeah, tired. Well, it needed I, a change for yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Of course. And when I came in and I saw that, I went... So here's the thing is I was touring with a theater company and saw a show on the main stage. Um, it might have been a touring company. I don't know. But it was... it was the to- At the time, the, the review was old wine and new bottles. Now, I smoked a big fucking joint in the, hall, in the parking garage before I went up to the... <laughs> I just killed Sorry. a bug on my that table. Was, that was just a bug getting killed. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to say... No, I think it's I, great, though. Well, it makes it seem like I live in like some third world. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, we're doing this from Tijuana in a shack. Yeah, it's all right though. We got um, there's a dead hooker in the corner, but that <laughs> was here before I got here. Um, but I, I uh, oh yeah, and I saw the show. It was old wine and new bottles was the was the current main stage at the time. I don't know if that's what we saw because I smoked a joint in the parking lot before we went in. <laughs> So I remember going in, sitting right next to, and I'm pretty sure it was Craig Taylor. So it had to be the resident company. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been working the thing. And I said, it was terrible. And I went, this is fucking terrible. That show was terrible. And this building 
Look at the pictures on the wall. I mean, you walk in, you see the pictures on the wall, and you go, fuck, I want to work here, man. I want to work amongst these people. I want my picture on that wall. My, my picture's still not on the wall. And uh, I want I want to get my fucking picture on that wall, man. This is where I'm going to work. And it's this is just bad enough that I might be able to get in. That was my thinking. Right? And then I can't... And that was Thanksgiving of 94, I think, I want to say. Wow. Thanksgiving in 94. And I was still touring with that company. Went out, came back, would have been October of 95. And the main stage show was... Uh, paradigm lost and of course it was different it was Rachel Dratch and it was Tina Fey and it was Scott Adsit and I just went oh fuck <laughs> you know I can't I mean I looked at Dratch on that stage and I thought well surely this chick's not going to be here very long because she's going straight to fucking stardom I mean this chick is incredible and that dude with the crazy hair Scott Adsit same thing you know I mean, I worked there at the time, and I felt the same way. I was like, when the first time I had to improvise with Adam McKay, I was like, and uh, it was like Dorf, McKay, and Keckner, and I was like, oh fuck! Like I was like, I was like, you know, I was playing with Charlie Parker, and I was, you know, Kenny G. Like it was like, yeah. it was like. <laughs> but here's the thing, man. I mean, here's the thing I learned about you that I never knew, and this is what I meant by that. This is what I wanted to talk about, not that bullshit. But that, like, you have these people in your life that you spend this time with, you get to know them and everything, but you don't know where they're... I never fucking knew about you that you were, like, a kid at Second City, hanging out, watching sets, going out afterwards as a fucking kid. You know, like... Yeah, it was coming crazy. Commuting down there as a kid. I mean, for anybody who lives anywhere other than a big city, the notion of going somewhere by yourself that's 15 to 20 miles away is... What are you out of your mind? That's not going to happen. And the big city, which yeah, my parents there, painted out like it was, yeah, like gunfights all the time, which it is now. Well, yeah, <laughs> depends how far south you go, but, um, but that was the, that was what really struck me is that like you had been there and had been a student of this thing from an audience standpoint, and then from like a set standpoint, and then touring, and then getting on the ETC, um, for a much longer period of time than I ever imagined. You know, my path there was I showed up in 95 and by 2003, I was hired for the main stage, you know, so eight years after moving to the city, I didn't even take an improv class for the first two years. So it wasn't, a, you know, there was, there was a, a six years from my first improv class to joining the main stage. And that's pretty quick considering it takes a year to get through the training center, you know? Yeah. You kind of flew through the joint. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? Other than great talent. I mean, I think, you were like, because you also have a th legit theater background. As I think they say. that was it. I think that was it. And thank you for saying legit. <laughs> That's people, how we always viewed it. If people aren't watching legit on Netflix, <laughs> they really should be watching legit on Netflix. Anyway. Should I just uh, put it on uh, repeat so just you just keep that. getting the... Here's the thing. The only reason I do that is because I felt like I did a great fucking TV show and nobody fucking watched it. Anyway. I legit, heard nothing but Netflix. great... Everybody anyway, loved that show and it was like... I, what was it about Jim Jeffries that... It wasn't him. It, it was wasn't... it was the showrunner. Uh, anyway, we can talk okay. about that later. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I have to guess, you know, it, that's really what it is. But I, I think that we already talked about part of it, which is somebody that was in the building who maybe didn't have... You didn't have power necessarily, but you were in that building and you said, this is the guy, you know, that helps. Because if it w I had just auditioned for the touring company and... They had turned me down. And then you said you should hire this guy in Greg Mills' spot 
and I went out on the road. And while I was out on the road filling in for Greg Mills, the letter showed up at home that said, we're sorry you have not been accepted into the touring company while I was working with the touring company. That's crazy. I still have the letter, obviously. I wouldn't have you know, thrown that out. But So it's that kind of shit. It's guys like you. It's guys like Miles Stroth. It's guys like Mick Napier. Uh, Noah Gregoropoulos, people that have been there before me that saw Craig Kakowski was a huge advocate. And I mean, Craig, Craig's a brilliant actor, great improviser, but also doesn't suffer from our need to go, you know what's fucked up about this right now? He'll, <laughs> Craig, Craig will kind of go, oh, well, it's not ideal. We're all grateful to be here. You know, he could be a nice guy, you know, and you go, fuck, man, that guy was you know, flew through, did how many ETC shows and then how many main stage shows, you know, and was there for a long time, you I, know? Yeah. I always wonder, I was like, why couldn't I have looked, like, I was always attracted to the performers who were trying to fuck something up and were being dangerous, and I was like, yeah, why couldn't I have just tried to be like John Candy? But just- I don't think that that's, I don't think that would have worked, you know? I mean, it's like, look at, look at a guy like, you know, here we are, t- we're talking about all these people nobody fucking knows, but. And I listen to this show, so I know that this is not the way you normally do your show. I feel like a dick. No, I think people know. But I think that, you know, I came in there as an actor. You know, I'd done nothing but acting. Improv was supposed to be a skill that I was going to hone so that I could use it when things go wrong in theater. That's what it was supposed to be. And what happened instead was I found out, one, that I was good at it, and two, that I loved it. And I think that's a more interesting conversation is what, what is it that's interesting about it? Why the fuck does somebody want to get up in front of people not knowing what they're about to say and do it despite the fact that you have a hit ratio of probably 30% if you're lucky? You know, I think Major League Baseball players have about the same <laughs> hit rate that we have in terms of success, true success Did you take in improvisation. Did you do other stuff besides, did you do the Herald and all that stuff? Yeah, I did. I.O. did all that shit. Yeah, but I, think- I was doing that. I mean, that, that was quick too. I mean, I was in level four or something and miles was our teacher miles stroth was our teacher and he he tried to get someone else in the class to do a show with him and they didn't like him and said no i don't want to do a show they said no thank you and we all knew oh yeah she does she's not real hot on him but uh because he was kind of he was rough you know i mean he was very fucking blunt you know he would say that was terrible sit down you know people don't like that um and when she said no he said how about you you want to do a show i said sure i'll do a show so we started doing a show on Wednesday nights at the I.O. when there was no show there. Wednesday night was free night. First, it was ladies night. They were trying to get anybody to fucking show up. Ladies can drink free. And then it was, OK, all the shows are free and the drinks are a dollar. And people still weren't coming because it was early days. I mean, we were mid. I was mid generation, but it was like early days. You certainly weren't thinking about buying new space back then, you know. <laughs> and um, so we started doing a free show on Wednesday nights at 1030. That space and that time is now TJ and Dave. So the audience obviously showed up. I mean, they showed up about three months into our show, but I was only in level four when I started doing a two-man show with the most feared guy in improv in town. That's crazy. I didn't know that. And so every Wednesday night, we would do as long a show as we wanted because there was no one there anyway, and it was free. And if you liked it, you're going to throw a dollar on the stage. And if you didn't, fuck you, you know? And we would do 60 characters, 30 scenes in an hour and 15 minutes, you know, or sometimes it went that long because Miles was like, nope, 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 you're going to pay. You know, he was teaching me on stage. Really? Kind of thing. And he wouldn't necessarily say it, but he would sometimes stop a scene and go, "Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know what Dan's doing right now is he's attempting to be clever 
by saying ba 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 and I'd be standing there going, you fucking dick. We're supposed to be partners up here. But here's the thing, Dwyer. I never looked at it like, I was never upset about it. I just knew that's who he was. And I went, ah, what are you going to do? We're going to be at the bar later tonight getting fucking housed till four in the morning, hanging out, talking about the show, trying to make it better. And that really was the goal. So I had reps that most people don't get early on. I was also older when I came into the game. I mean, I was 25 when I moved to Chicago. Where'd you move from? From Florida. Oh, I didn't know you were from Florida. Or I yeah, did, I forgot. I grew up in Florida. You, I'm born in Minnesota. You seem a very Chicago guy. Well, I, I took to Chicago, man. I mean, I got to Chicago, and wow, this is my kind of town, man. Yeah, that's how I felt. Like, my parents told me, don't go to... They hated the city. My first time I went to the city, which was... To see Second City, I think. I, mean, I might have went down there to see, like, the Talking Heads movie yeah. or something. But I was like, I was like, this is it. Like, what are you fucking talking yeah. about? Like, I still guys, feel that way. If it weren't for the weather? Yeah, it's hard. It's a, like it's like the like a, somebody I was madly in love with, but it's just like, oh, this isn't going to work out. She's just too crazy. <laughs> She's just too crazy. She's nuts. And it's like, it's not... The healthiest place to be. On no, so many levels. Not just, I'm, like, the bars open till yeah. all night. It's just like... If I lived there now, I'd be, I would look like shit. I'd be fat. I don't know if I'd still, if I stayed there, I don't know if I'd still be there. I'd probably be back in Florida. I probably would have said, all right, fuck it. My parents have an extra room. I'm moving home. And I'd be 40 living back there. And now it'd be five years later. I'd be 45 living in, you know, somewhere down the street from them. But you were, weren't you working in legit theater? There it is again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, but I w- the first two years in Chicago, I worked in, in theater because I was scared to take improv classes because I saw that fucking show and I went, oh, are you fucking kidding me? I thought it was all made up. First of all, I didn't realize that they were scripting this shit. I just thought these people are genius. It was a genius show anyway, but it was the thing where I said, I can't hang with this shit. I can't. I mean, I've never even taken a class. I thought I was going to come here and go, Hey, wh- where do I go? The thought was, Dwyer, you show up, they know you're awesome, they put you on a stage, you do that for a couple months, and then you go over to the Steppenwolf, and then you become John Malkovich. <laughs> now, that's kind of how I thought it was, too. Well, sure. I mean, that's, listen, that is the way it is uh, for some people. You know, that's the way it was for some people. You know, that's some people's path. Mine was not that path. But, so, I don't know. I mean, long, long answer over is, I think it was a, it was a confluence of a lot of things. I think if, if, um, if the producers there had had their way, I don't think it would have been as fast a track. I think Ed Furman was attracted to me as well as a, as a performer and said, let's do a show together. And I said, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know. We'll just do a scene. We'll do a 25 minute scene and we'll just, I don't want to get up and walk around and I don't want to do the editing and shit like that. Let's just do one scene. I said, all right, man, that seems tough. It was, it, well, you know, Ed. Yeah. I mean, dude, you and I could do it beautifully the same as ed and i do it beautifully because it's like well we're, we're kind of kindred spirits we have a lot of common experiences and we just sit there and have a 25 minute conversation you know while we're cleaning a bowl or something you know it's like it's really it's the most it's the most mundane shit but it's a brilliant show i think it's a very funny show but doing that show with eddie on tuesday nights in the etc because there was nothing there and of course the second city was like what what's this you want to do We'll do a series called Unhinged. Cool. All right. And we'll do what? We'll do improv shows. Who's going to do it? Well, Ed and I will be the headliners because it's our idea. 
And then, I don't know, there will be some other shows, too. we got this group of people, uh, Tracy Thorpe, uh, Rebecca Sohn, you know, people like that. People that have been there for a while. We'll do an ensemble show beforehand. And fuck it, you guys can charge whatever you want. You can give us, you know, five bucks each a week or whatever. It was 50 <laughs> bucks a week or something we made or 25. And doing that show, Joyce Sloan, came, who was the, what, the producer forever. Yeah, Executive owner. producer or whatever forever. She never owned it oh, was she never Bernie did? that owned. This is the shit that I didn't know. I thought she. Uh, this is the I th- shit I never knew. Bernie owned it, and it looked like why wouldn't she sell? He's going to sell it to Joyce, and instead he went, "Ah, oh, here's this guy from Canada who wants to buy it. I'll sell it to him." And didn't even tell Joyce until after the deal was done. Oh, I, she I never a, knew that shit. I thought she had a chunk of it at least. I don't think so. As far as I know, well, she must it was, have felt stabbed. Well, yeah, that's which would explain why she said, "Fuck you! I'm not leaving my office for 20 years. I'm going to be right fucking here." <laughs> You're going to give me a, a, what was it, producer emeritus, and I'm going to sit down here, and you're going to fucking pay me. But hmm. she saw that improv show and then went to them and said, if you don't put this guy on the stage, you, you're fucking up. Now, here's the thing. I was not prepared to do that job. I never, Main stage? Or- yeah, any, any scripted show. <laughs> I, never, I never had the desire to write any material. I think it's the reason I never... I think the universe protected me from getting something like SNL or Mad TV because I would have sunk immediately. I sunk at the Daily Show. I got there and immediately it was like. Was that a tough environment to it work? It was in? horrible. What is what made it so difficult? Because shit rolls downhill and there's one big pile of shit at the top of the thing, you know. Was it like stepping into that show? Is it like because like any of those environments that I've been around, it's like it's a tight knit group. You're the new guy. And it's like. Some people let yeah. you know you're the new guy. There's that. I I don't think there was that nearly as much as there just was one guy at the top of the hill, whose face is on all the posters, who was a dick. You know, he's a dick. That's all there is to it. You know, and it's funny because I bumped into a friend of ours who was writing for Conan at the time, and he goes, "How's it going?" And I said, "Good." And he said, "How how is he?" And I said, "He's a dick." And he goes, "Yeah, so is Conan." And I said, "Well, what the fuck is this?" And he goes, "That's all right. Letterman is too. They all are. It's what." It's the job. When the job is the blank show with my name on it, the whole fucking world is on my shoulders. And if you're bad on my show, I look bad, not you. You don't look bad. I look bad for putting you there. I look bad for letting you do the bit. I get it. But there was no supportive atmosphere whatsoever of like, hey, you're new. Why don't we help you figure this out? You know? Um, So that was my experience. It seems weird. sucked. But I mean, because we come from a, I mean, to a degree, we come from a background that is like supportive. And Teamwork. It's like, and it's like, it's just weird to me that other places don't pick. Like, the whole thing with SNL, I'm like, maybe you wouldn't suck so bad if you fucking like weren't dicks to everybody. Yeah, and I, I look at it and I think, you know, I can't believe how many of my friends still watch it. And I still have friends that work there. Um, and there are moments. And I guess that's why. Is that, at the SNL? Yeah, they'll watch the, the friends that watch, they say they watch because when that one moment happens, it makes it all worth it. And I go, I don't know that it does because I can watch it online the next day. So I don't have to fucking watch the whole show to catch the one moment. Yeah. You know, and there isn't that supportive environment. I remember hearing another friend of ours who was working at SNL, who was a brilliant writer, brilliant improviser, great performer. He was writing on SNL and um, was doing was submitting some stuff and they kept saying, that's more of a Chicago joke, you know, which means what 
you know, to me, that means what grounded and builds to the point and then has laughs along the way and then has a nice ending. And you're not interested in that. <laughs> Is that what that means? It's funny. That, you know. Mitch Rouse, I had coffee with Mitch Rouse the other day, and he was telling me that when they were doing Exit 57, they were priming, they were going to take that whole cast and plop them in SNL. They wanted to. Yeah. And a guy said almost the exact, he's like, you guys take your comedy too seriously. And he and he, he's like, what? He's like, well, you just, you labor over, like, coming up with an ending to the scene and blah, 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 all this stuff. And he was like, and then, and she's like, we don't have time for that. We put up a show, like, in a week. And he's like, yes, yeah, so do we. It's yeah. Like, like what's wrong it. with that? And I get it. You know, I get that, like, hey, we do this every week and it's live and all that. And, and I'm always shocked. I don't know. I guess that's the other thing is I don't know a whole lot of badass ass kickers that wound up getting the job at SNL and stayed. I mean, I think Ali Faranakian was one of those guys. And how long did he last? Half a season? Yeah. Because he probably said, what? No, listen, we're doing And they went, all right, this guy's got to go. You know, and that was not my problem at the Daily Show. It wasn't that I came in and said, all right, all right, look, I'm here now. I'm going to, I was humbled by my experience at Second City going, you don't know what you're doing. So let them tell you how to do it. So I showed up and said, what should I do? And they went, oh, God. Well, they didn't go. He said, oh, God, look, we don't have time to teach you how to be funny. That would, now that, I wish I could say that was a, I wish I could say I'm paraphrasing. That was a fucking quote. Really? In my, First, I, I got hired in September and was sitting at his desk in December having my review for my three months. With John Stewart? With uh, this guy oh. who shall go unnamed, the blank show at with blank. Um, and he said, uh, I said, look, man, all I'm asking is, well, first of all, I talk to him like I talk to you. Hey, man, come on. You know, and what he wants is not sir. But don't call me man, don't call me buddy, don't call me coach, don't call me dude type of thing. Now, that's unspoken, but you find out afterwards, why are you talking to him like you're familiar? And it's like, I don't know, I think we're, aren't we in a team situation here? No, no team, no, no, no. You're the fucking ball boy. He's the singles tennis world champion. That's what this is, you know? Oh, okay. And I said, look, I'm just trying to get better. I'm just curious what I can do to be better. Look, we got a show to put up. I don't have time to teach you how to be funny. And I just kind of went, okay, I'm bringing my record player in and I'm getting a lava lamp and a fucking beanbag chair and I'm going to play video games all day and you let me know when you want me. Did they, but see, but then there was a reason they hired you. So what the, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what's confusing to me. I think I got hired because the other people, I think the network and the executive producer that came to Ben Carlin was the executive producer, one of the executive producers at the time. He came to Chicago and, and auditioned me. First, the network came and they were like, fuck, this is the, I heard him saying on my way out the door, this is the guy. And I was like, oh my God, I, I just quit drinking six months before that and was like, ah, fuck, I hope they're lying because I can't take it. I don't want to do this. I don't want, let's just keep things the way they are. And, um, and then Ben came into town and he basically said like, can you move to New York? This is your job if you're, if you want it. And so I think that was part of it was I was their choice and I was thrust upon John. Like you got to see this guy. Now I don't, I don't pat myself on the back cause look at how it turned out. But like, I think that's what happened was you got to see this guy. Cause all my friends, producers, writers, editors, field producers, everybody that worked there that was a friend of mine said, the buzz in the building was the new guy is fucking great. He's got a whole different thing and it's going to be fucking great. And just wait till you see it. And I showed up and at my very first 
thing in the studio, John basically crossed his arms and went, I don't know what you're doing, man. What? But this doesn't work. Really? Yeah. And how did you feel about this? Like, did you, were you oh, like, oh, I was this like, is... fuck this. I'm going back to Chicago. No, but I mean, while you were doing the piece, were you like, oh, this is great. Fine. Great. Just the same as I did in the auditions. And I felt like I was doing what I was sent there to do, which is what I do. Which is not going to be, John, I'm standing outside the White House right now. It was more like, yeah, John, I don't know. I'm outside of the White House. Um, that seems pretty quiet to me. You know, I was doing it much more like an Ed Bradley approach. Like, remember Ed Bradley on yeah. 60 Minutes? He's a black guy who'd like lean back. He had earrings. <laughs> He's leaned back in his chair with his legs crossed, no tie, his shirt open. Like, he was a different kind of approach. Big fuzzy beard. Like, do whatever the fuck he wanted almost. And I thought, why not have one guy? That's different. And the message immediately was, this isn't going to work. And I thought, that's what I did in my audition. You know? I can't help but just from knowing the way this shit works is that... Fucking fucking dogs. It's okay. They don't usually get picked up on the mic. But like the... the, the, um, Somebody... Stuart wanted somebody else and blah, blah, blah. Like just the weird behind-the-scene politics that you would never even know of. Yeah. And so Stuart's like, I'll show you who's fucking boss. I'll make this guy's fucking life miserable. That's how I... Because it's like... And it's it, the other thing I hear you say is like you never felt comfortable at Second City or right, like yeah, and correct. See, what I, the way I viewed it from the outside is like, of course that guy should be on fucking main stage. And when you left and you threw and you were angry, I was like, threw my tantrum, threw your it's tantrum. Okay, you can say that. I've I was known I to it. throw a tantrum and physical objects myself. And I respected that, <laughs> but I was like, I was like, fuck, that's the end of an era. Like that's the end of a guy who's gonna, you know stand up for things and get angry and th- that was how i viewed it and then when you got daily shows like of course he got daily sh-. like I was yeah like- <laughs> <laughs> well but here's the thing what's funny to me is that you know when that happened when i got that second city gig and i looked at it and i said this is the fucking dream this is what i moved here for i mean i told you i came in on thanksgiving i saw that show i said i'm moving i'm gonna i'm gonna do that show you know and i got that show and then i found out oh no i don't like I don't like doing it. I like watching it. I don't like doing it. You didn't like doing it? No, I didn't have enough... Uh, I didn't do enough research into what it's like. I should have gone and shadowed someone like Kevin Dorff for a week. I didn't know that that shit would have been okay. Any main stage or ETC member would have said, Sure, kid who's in the touring company, come fucking follow me around for a week. Watch what this job is really like. And I would have said, No thanks. Did you not understudy any shows? Oh, I did. But understudying was different because yeah. you come in for two nights while they're at their cousin's wedding... <laughs> You know, and everybody goes, wow, great job. You just had your put in today. Really good job. And you get to go out and have drinks and you get, you know, you're part of the team, you know. But Dorf was right when he said it or someone. I think it was Dorf who said it's like the van without wheels. It's like being on the fucking road. That's a great analogy. There's no wheels on the van. So it's the same as being touring. You're away from everybody. You're isolated. You got nobody near you that you everybody, you know, is sleeping. You know, you're going off work at one o'clock, two o'clock on a on a Saturday. You know, everybody you know is fucking sleeping, except the people that work I'm in that I'm still building. spoiled by that life to this day, where I'm just like, I, we went to a movie on a Saturday, and I was just like, fuck, this is fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's that thing where, when I lived in Vegas, when I did the Second City show in Vegas, that was different. Now, I also hated doing that show. That was But that brutal. was... Were but you before me or after me? I was the first. Oh, you were the it first. It was me and, and Sudeikis and Lucas, and that was who I hung out with. Uh, Seamus was there too, and and um, uh, Mark Rozeka. But it was me, Seamus, and Luke. I mean, me, Lucas, and Sudeikis, who would, you know, wake up at 
noon 30, 1 o'clock, 1.30, go to the pool, smoke a little grass, <laughs> go do the show, fucking drink, smoke weed, play video games, eat mushrooms. I don't know. Maybe Sudeikis didn't do any of that. Depends on what his public persona is. <laughs> um, but Sorry, dude. I didn't, I didn't think before I said that, but I don't give a shit what people think of me, but uh, he might. I never got um, an impression of him being a big... He barely drank... Which yeah, one? yeah, he may not be into it. Loves heroin, though. Uh, but we, uh, anyway. yeah, big, big smackhead <laughs> kicks the gong around. Um, and we would, I mean, that was the thing, was like, eh, let's go out into the city on mushrooms and walk around a casino. And that was fun. But doing the show was a drag. Doing the same shit over and over and over again every fucking night. And it's not written by Eugene O'Neill. All due respect to Steve Carell and, and, uh, and Pictionary. yourself. <laughs> And, you know, people that wrote the stuff that we did in those shows, you know, the dream song, the Pictionary, and that's, a, dude, no fun to do over and over and oh, over I w- again. Oh, I stepped into that show miserable, and I, my life was already miserable. I was hoping that would, like, be a catalyst to no, change. Vegas no, Vegas does not make life better. No, it doesn't. And no. it sounds awful, but I, the reason I lost my job there is because 9-11 happened, and I was like, tragedy, horrible thing. I got to leave Vegas, so not everything is bad. You came right after me then, because I left April 2001. Yeah, I, I took over for Rosecca, I think, and I came in, okay, in yeah. August or July. Oof, yeah. The worst time of year to live in yeah, Vegas. Yeah, it's a good time to be in Vegas. But So after after the Daily Show, though, you, like, what was, because you're like, what are you, fucking stranded in New York? And you're like, Yeah, well, that was the thing. I said, I, I booked an independent movie that nobody will ever see, and it shot in New Orleans. And I was down in New Orleans for Halloween and standing there. And here comes a, an RV full of drunken douchebags dressed up in their Halloween costumes. And I looked at it and I said, we got to rent an RV and move to Los Angeles. Like, that was it. I just said, we got to fucking move. We got to get out of New York. We're not going to make it. We're not going to. Were you thinking about staying? Uh, mildly. I mean, I had a kid at the time and I was like, fuck, I'm going to pick up and move and shit. We got a two year lease on this place that we just rented down in Manhattan beach, which is all the way down at the bottom of Brooklyn, our train ride just to get into Manhattan. And like, what the fuck am I going to do? I can't keep doing that. And I don't have a job and jobs are hard to come by in New York. I mean, there was 30 rock and there was SU, uh, uh, not SUV, but, um, law and order. I had already done an episode of each. So done, you know, <laughs> like, out of ideas, I got to get the fuck out of here. And so I did. I started researching RVs. And when I got home, we got in an RV and moved, moved to Los Angeles. And I, I worked right away when I got here. I got a movie right away. And it was one of those ones where it's like, we got to use the guy from The Daily Show. Yeah, we should cast him in this role that he's not right for. You know? What was the movie? It was Observe and Report. It was a oh, uh, yeah. Seth Rogen movie. I actually really liked that and movie. I was the a lot stra- of people I was didn't. the straight man. And it's like, oh, God, I can't be the straight man in this crazy fucking world. And Ray Liotta was on the movie, and he even said, yeah, kid, I don't envy you. And I said, why? And he goes, you're the straight man in this crazy fucking world. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, because what happens is, no offense to everybody, but they don't know the difference between somebody who's told to be straight and somebody who's just not funny. You know, so it looks like this guy's not funny. I'm in this big fucking movie that gets dwarfed by Paul Blart, you know, and not, I'm the not funny guy in the movie. I'm the only one who doesn't get a laugh, you know, in the whole fucking movie. And that's a rough spot to be. Then everything falls apart. You know, the economy starts shitting. The, the housing market goes down. I don't work for a year. I don't get a job for a year. I'm living in Los Angeles for a year, not working, freaking the fuck out. Because, like. You and know, you got kids. And I got a kid. 
Yeah, and I was like, what the fuck, you know? It's so different when, because it's like, I never had a relationship with somebody I really cared about where I was like, all right, I got to take care of you. It's always, yeah. I've always been on my own. So when the shit would go down, it's like, well, so I eat beans for a fucking week. Yeah. And I'll yeah, drink bush. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I had friends that were like, hey, man, at least you got a wife and a kid. You know, I mean, if you were alone and I'm like, you are so fucking delusional. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, I look at these people and I go, oh God, don't starve these people. Don't starve these people. What am I going to do? Hustle, hustle, hustle. And I don't, you know, dude, I've never really had to. Because like I said, Miles said, you want to do a show? You put in a word for me at Second City. I'm working at Second City. Daily Show comes to town. Sharna says, why don't you look at this guy? I get that job. Now I'm in a position where it's like, well, we're doing everything we can, but we can't get you in the room. Now, maybe word got out that I had a little falling out with John on my way out of the building. I didn't leave quietly. <laughs> when, they, when they said, as you probably already know, we're not going to re-up your contract. And I said, well, is John going to come by and say goodbye? Thank you. She said, Dan, the CEO doesn't come by and say goodbye when someone leaves the mailroom. And I said, well, excuse me. I don't work in the fucking mailroom. I thought we were a team here. But he's really not going to come? She said, no. And I said, well, then you can tell him for me that he's a coward. And she said... Oh, Dan, I don't. And I said, you're right. Tell him he's a little coward. Because <laughs> I knew those short guys, they don't like that shit. You know, and it's like, <laughs> I couldn't fucking help it, Matt. You know, and maybe word got out. I don't know. But I mean, for all I know. Yeah, it's funny because people don't want to think of. God knows, people... Santa Claus. He's Santa Claus. He's not a bad guy. Yeah. And I, I you know, I've always been under the impression he's. Somebody's told me he's not as liberal as you, one would think. And he's a little... I don't know. I don't know. They would have to be his wife or one of his kids because nobody else is that close with him. Maybe he has... Fr I mean, he probably has friends in, in his old life before he got that job. But everybody I knew at that job didn't really know him. They were like, dude, there's no picnics in the Hamptons at, at his place or anything like that. If you're thinking there's going to be like camaraderie here. I mean, that's... I mean, there's... I, to me, I'm like, I would never run anything that way. And I'm like, maybe that's why I've never run anything like that. I don't that. know about that. No, no, because there's plenty... I mean, Julie Louis-Dreyfus on Veep. She, fuck, dude. She's generous. She's funny. She's... You know, you say something funny, and she goes, oh, that's good. Keep that. You know, do that again. Yeah. It's not, oh, that's good. I'm going to keep that for myself and say it, and you just keep your mouth shut. It's different. I mean, she comes from a similar background. She as, comes from our that, background. It's a stand-up yeah. world. It's, it's, yeah, it, and it, I get it, you know. But it's like Jack Benny used to always say, and this is the thing that's always stuck with me, is he would say, like, he didn't give a fuck if everybody was funnier than him. He's like, because tomorrow they're going to say, did you see Jack Benny's show? Yeah. And he's like, that's all that matters. And on that note, Jim fucking Jeffries, who wrote and created Legit, which you can watch both seasons on Netflix right now. <laughs> Not that I'm going to make any money off of that, because I, I won't, but... You should, should, shouldn't you? You don't get anything for that, dude. I mean, that's the whole reason that the networks and Netflix fight, is because they're like, we're basically giving it away, and Netflix is like, everybody will watch it. Do you want them to watch it? You didn't fucking get them to watch it. You want them to watch it or not? Put it on, and we'll watch, you know. Um, I don't say it for that, I say it because it's the work that I'm most proud of. Right. But that fucking guy... For and I don't know how well you know him as a stand-up, but not much at all. He's a huge fucking stand-up, particularly Europe, um, England, gigantic, um, but very, very gruff, very dark. Tells a lot of his personal stories, and they're very dark, <laughs> you know. Um, and he writes this show that's very dark with a huge heart, and he gave me some of the best shit 
in the show. He could have kept it for himself. Sometimes it's just a joke, and he'd go, why don't we have Spoonface say that one? <laughs> and he called me Spoonface because he said, I look like when you look at yourself in the back of a spoon. Yeah, see, that's most people's reaction, <laughs> is they immediately agree. Um, and why don't we have Spoonface say that one? You know, And he would give me these fucking lines. He could very easily have gone the route of, it's my fucking show. It's my joke. I'm saying it. And it would have been fine. Nobody would have batted an eye. But he was generous. I'm not going to say he's the easiest guy in the world to work with. I mean, I don't know who that is. But, you know, he was very generous. And he's a stand-up. But he was not... I think, I think there was a thing where, like, he had the confidence and the conviction of his own fucking ideas to go, oh, I know my ideas are fucking brilliant. I'll, here, I'll prove it to you. I'll give it to you. You can't even fuck it up, you know? <laughs> That's great. I, I wish I had that conviction. I've never had that where I'm like, like I, there's people I've worked with and they're just, and some, to a fault sometimes they're like, I, I, I know it all. And it's like, you don't, but fuck, I wish I had that bullshit. Yeah. In me. Well, I see guys like that. I just got done working on something not too long ago. No names. Um, <laughs> and there was a guy that I just went, damn, I thought you were funny and I thought you were cool. And then I work with you and I find out you are so your head is so far up your own ass that you can't even see that you're wasting immense amounts of time around here playing with your own idea and not sharing any time with anyone else and just stamping on other people. And, and not in a malicious way, not a mean person at all, playful, funny, but like you look at it and you go, there's six people here and you're just going and going and going and going and they're rolling and rolling and rolling and you're just wondering how does this not get stopped? And it's, they have all the confidence in the world that don't worry, I got this. You know, my, my approach is never that my approach is always, don't worry, I have an idea. And if that doesn't work, I'll come up with another one. And in the meantime, anyone else who has an idea, please give it. Cause we need to move on. Yeah. I mean, that's the best thing. Like working with Mick Napier. And then when people are like, Oh, I want to go to Chicago study improv or they want to study improv period. I'm like, Mix the dude now, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. And he has been. And I would say, like, just beyond teaching me how to improvise, like, the way I communicate in life is affected by or influenced by Mick. It's like, but his whole thing of, like, it's okay to not know. Like, that's what the one of the great things. He was like, to not know something is fine, but we'll figure it out and we'll discover it. And I was like, yeah. that was mind-blowing to me. Was like, I think that's the true intention of this whole improv thing. I mean, originally that's what it was. It was supposed to be communication between actors to figure out how to get to the moment quicker in a scripted play. I mean, it was a game that they would play to warm up to do a fucking play, you know? And then Dell and, you know, whoever wants to take credit, turned it into its own thing. And then we learn how to do it for fun and for free and whatever. But the idea is supposed to be clearer, crisper communication. You know, that's the thing. I, here's the thing. I've got to say this on this show because... <laughs> Listening to your fucking podcast, nobody listens the way you do in your podcast. I listened to your interview with John Sinclair, and that guy would go, you know what I mean? And you go, so basically you're saying, anyway, so I was on this couch, and you would stop and let him talk. You know, nobody is able to do that because they go, well, I got these questions that I need to get out, or I really need to ask this question, or I want to fucking talk now. You do such a great fucking job of letting people go and being a listener that 
people tend to either reveal secrets or, <laughs> you know, or or just give great story or whatever. Well, that's, I mean, I take that as a compliment. But that's what I want. should like, be a compliment, dude. That's what it is. People will be, I guess, will be like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I talked a lot. And I'm like, it's not about me. It's about, like, that's exactly, like, that's all I want. And it's like, like John Sinclair or these guys. I'm like, what, what am I, what am I going to say to John Sinclair that that guy has an experience? I'm like, yeah, fucking go. I want to hear it. Yeah, but I don't think, I mean, and I don't mean that in terms of like, I'm thankful that you shut up so that John Sinclair could talk. I mean it in terms of, you, it's it's a skill, and not everybody has it. Plenty of people think they can do that, and what they do instead is they push, 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 drive, 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 and now the person answering doesn't know where the fuck they are anymore, you know? But you do such a great job of allowing people, I'm, it goes back to the improv thing. It's about listening, you know? And you're listening, your questions are coming out of, the genuine desire to know, okay, 60, how old is he? 72 year old guy yeah, who's he's living on someone's couch in Amsterdam. <laughs> um, how did that occur? You know, and, and what's life like now, you know? And I think that's really fucking unique. Yeah. I can't imagine that being on a couch at 70. I'm, I was anyway, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Whole uh, thing. Can you talk about uh, what is the animated thing? Is that what's going on with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I is that I don't. Where is that at? Because uh, I I think we're in the process. Mike Burns wrote a uh, an animated pilot for Comedy Central, and I got cast in it. And you were the one who outed that, which I thought was pretty. <laughs> like I said, having having the experience with the Second City thing, having you be the one go congratulations on Dad Boner, and going what? What's that? And you go, my buddy Burns wrote this thing. You he said you're casting it. Oh, wait a minute. You know? <laughs> and it was before I got the message. I called my agents I'm and they went, well, hold on. We're not, it's not a done deal yet. And I said, make it a done deal. I want to fucking do this thing. I love the script. Um, I, the last thing I saw was uh, it's Gary Cole and I. That's, as, how is that? You to work, because well, Gary, Gary Cole's I, a god. Yeah, Gary and I worked together on, on Veep and spent a lot of time together in Baltimore just farting around, you know, so. There's a comfort there, but we haven't recorded together yet. It's been, I come in and Gary's in there recording pickups and then he goes home and I go in and record my pickups. So we haven't had any sessions together, but I think it looks great. I mean, it's just that thing where it's like good doesn't always mean good or great doesn't always mean going to get made. Oh, I've seen, that's the thing that depresses me is like the things I've seen of stage readings of friends scripts and like, you know, for executives and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then just, I was like, O'Connell wrote this thing and Comedy Central was like, nope. And I was like, are you fucking insane? Like, this is brilliant. Like, it yeah. was like one of the funniest things I'd seen. And they were like, yeah, we don't know. And I was like, fuck off. Like, fuck all of you. Well, and it's that thing where you look at it and you go, how much of this is, this, this is what I was talking about with the Second City thing, where I used to just think, you're not doing the way I thought it should get done. So you must be fucked. But how much of that is by design that they're looking at the whole picture and going, well, we already have a fat guy and two girls and a black guy. So we need a skinny, angry guy. You know what I mean? Like, so when I would look at their casting and go, you guys are fucked. Why aren't you picking the next best person? And their answer was because we needed a really good writer. And the next best person was a great improviser, but not a great writer. Or what have you. Right. And I wonder, I might be giving networks too much credit, but I wonder how many times with those things they're going, yeah, it's great. But it's also a lot like this other show that we already have and we don't want to or sometimes they just don't fucking see it you know that's the thing i learned on legit was jim would call me and say all right mate i got an idea for an episode here's what's gonna happen you're gonna be walking down the side of the road 
in your underwear with a black eye, and you're gonna rip a, you know, when a, a child dies and they hang up, you know, they put flowers and <laughs> flowers and candles and shit on the side of the road, and there's a bear hanging there. You're gonna rip the bear down and go, I'm gonna bring this home for my daughter, right? And someone drives by and and says, you sick fuck, and then you respond, how do you know I'm not putting it up? You know, that's great. Yeah, great bit. And I go, wow, what's the episode? I don't know. I'm gonna build one around that, right? And I go, I love working with this guy. He just gave, he gave that to me, right? So that's a side note. But the point being, he goes, I'm going to build the episode around this moment. And the co-creator, the showrunner and the thing goes, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's not, it's really nothing. And Jim goes, just fucking shut up and give me my process. I know what I'm doing. I've done this in front of audiences for, you know, he's been doing stand-up for 15 years or whatever it is, and he's gotten to the point of success that he's at by doing what great stand-ups do, which is do it, try it, rewrite it, try it, rewrite it, try it again, because maybe it was the audience and not the bit, right? Whereas I think they sometimes, they being the people on the other side of that table, are sometimes going, doesn't work. And it's like, might be the audience. It can be, you know? Sometimes the bit is fine, it's just the day that they heard it doesn't work for them. And that remember working with Mick. I don't know if he ever did this with you guys. I'll bet you a dollar this doesn't work tonight. You know, he did that with us in Vegas. We go, I got an idea. And he go, I'll bet you a dollar that doesn't work. Really? And we go, define work. And he goes, it has to work in front of an audience. And we said, great. And we do it one night. And we go, it worked. Give me my dollar. And he go, one night does not mean it worked. That could have just been the audience, you know? And so it had to work a couple nights in a row in order for him to go, all right, here's your fucking dollar. And then two weeks later, you'd go, can we take that bit out? It's not working. And he'd go, yeah, I told you. I want my fucking dollar back. <laughs> you know? We had a bit, which was a, a magician. Sudeikis and Lucas and I wrote this bit. Bad, bad magician, basically. Bad bit, bad magician. <laughs> which was, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Poopenkopper, <laughs> that was his name, will now make this penny disappear. And he swallows it. Jeff Poopenkopper, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, right? And we were so tickled by our clever idea. And Mick shook his head and said, that won't work. And we said, oh, yeah, and he goes, I'll bet you a dollar. That night it got a laugh. We said, it worked. And he goes, it needs more. And a few weeks later, we said, yeah, you're right. This bit doesn't work. Did you guys write an original show out there? We were trying to write an original show out there. That was the idea originally was there would be a bunch of archival stuff to help float while you put it up because you're not dealing with the educated crowd educated in the second city sense it's a weird crowd out yeah, there. yeah well i mean the, the crowds at second city know second city they know what they're coming to see they may not understand the process but they know hey i saw that bit last year and it's still here but there's all this new stuff and then if i come back six months from now it'll all be new you know it's kind of like a stand-up like a louis or someone like that who's constantly working through getting rid of old material putting in new material until there's a new hour and then they say, I have a new show, you know. That's what, when you're telling that story about Jim Jeffries, it's like, when will the fucking, like, why is the industry going to fight guys like that? Or, like, I mean, I took Louie 20-something years to get to the point where he could do Louie, and it's just like. And a tremendous lucky shot, I think, is the other part of that. Yeah. Is that he got lucky that at the exact right time, FX didn't need any more success or money. They were doing great. And so to have someone like Louie come in and to know that they had hit the mother load of, of like creativity and so forth, because that show doesn't do well numbers wise. It's not like it makes a lot of money, but it doesn't cost shit. And it brings a ton of positive publicity to the network. 
because of awards and so forth, you know, and, you know, it's reviewed through the roof. So they got, he, they both got lucky. They got lucky that they got him when he was in a good enough mood to go, I'll do it. Let me do it my way. Don't touch me. Don't fuck with me. And they were lucky enough to go. He was lucky enough that they said, okay. And that's the agreement is this show's going to cost nothing. He's going to make nothing. We're not going to make anything off of it, but it's going to draw a ton of positive influence. Is it only get like viewed by dummies like us and like, because I heard like girls, yeah, which I, I mean, can't stand, and not because I'm a male or because yeah. I'm not in my twenties. The TV show <laughs> girls, right? Yeah, right. Okay, good. But that's what I always love when people are like, "Well, it's not for you." It's like, so I so a show shouldn't have a general theme that people can all people can relate to. Like, I that's... like the fact that shows can be specific now that there's so much out oh, there. Oh yeah, but I mean, like, but I can yeah. relate to people who I, have trouble in ro- relationships. Yes. Blah blah blah. It's like I yeah, remember I my twenties. I think that is the thing. I think it's. 40-something-year-old guys that look in the mirror and go, fuck, why didn't you work out? You know? <laughs> Mostly white are going, yeah, Louie, I love that show. Because it's us. Uh, it you is know? us. It is us. We look at it, we, and when he goes, I got to work hard to maintain this disgusting body. And you go, yeah, or I don't, and it gets more disgusting. You know? But, I mean, 20-something comics, I know comedians like the show, but that's not, you know. But that's that also, cannot, that's also yeah. his niche. He's a comic, and he's doing stand-up in the show, you know. So it appeals to him. Their most successful shows on FX are Always Sunny in Philadelphia and um, uh, The League. Those are the most successful cable comedies across all cable. Really? And they're both on FX. And neither of them are brilliant works of comedic genius. I mean, I would argue that Louis is presenting really heavy fucking issues at times and attempting to present it in a real, um, relatable yet realistic tone. And neither of those shows bother with that. They both go, it's a shouting fest, you know, and that's not to take anything away from the creators or the actors of the thing. They created hit shows. I have not. So that's a fact. But there's also things like the Big Bang out there that, listen, man, I mean, it's set up punch, set up punch, set up punch, set up punch. Everybody wants to bang the blonde chick. I don't know. I've never watched it, so I shouldn't really. <laughs> <laughs> but I, never I know watched... I don't relate. I just, I did one line on How I Met Your Mother, and I'd never seen the show, and I was like, I'll watch this to yeah. see myself on national television. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? We're in the minority. You know, we're the 400,000 that watch Louie or 800,000 that watch Louie and they are the 14 million that watch that show. But there is more that like now uh, as I as the wife is pregnant and I'm fucking exhausted every day because she's like she's sick most of the day. So I'm like got to do double duty. Come about five o'clock at night. I'm like, I don't want to do fucking anything. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm becoming I mean, I don't watch. How I Met Your Mother, but I'm like, I just want to watch something and not think. Yeah, and that's why they do. I mean, my dad is 87, loves two broke girls. I'll tell you why. (laughs) There's two young, hot chicks talking about their boobs and sex 90% of the time when they're not going, we're so broke, you know? And he sits there and goes, (laughs) and chuckles his ass off. My mom hates the show, won't watch it. I watched it with him because I was like, oh, I'm going to spend some time with the old man. And I sat and watched it, and I just shook my head going, wow, man. It really is. It is. It is. It is two 
hot chicks, especially for an 87-year-old guy. Anybody under 60 is a hot chick <laughs> for an 87-year-old guy. And these two women are both attractive. So to him, they're just smoking hot, and they're talking about boyfriends and sex, their boobs, and, and being broke constantly, you know? So of course he fucking loves it, you know? It, that's who it's made for. It's not made for me, and then it's made for the girls that, are, that can relate to them. Who'd like to talk about divorce? Yeah, and I'm into the shows about broken 40-something-year-old men. Episodes and Louie and, you know, I'll watch The Walking Dead, things like that. But, like, for the most part, my, my television watching is going to be about people who are struggling. I've liked things about broken 40-year-olds my whole life, though. Yeah. Like, I was, like, yeah. as a kid, I was like, oh. Like, especially, like, that era of Woody Allen, which is very similar to what Louie does. I was like, that, I was, like, always like, oh, that's what I want to do. Yeah. But I think that there's a th there's, there's something there about it's real. And it's attempting to say life can be a fucking drag. And sometimes I don't necessarily want to hang out. <laughs> you know, period, on the planet. But every now and then something good happens and I stick around. You know? but And I think the other one's painted as everything's fucking great. You know? It's the reason they would have a very special episode on occasion to give it a little levity because things become too fucking great and they can't reckon it anymore. Yeah. I've never been a fan of it's all great because it's not, yeah, no, that's it's why not. I like, but I always find like when people are like, Oh, those like movies make you feel sad and lonely. I'm like, actually I find it comforting that the guy doesn't get the chick and he's miserable. Cause I'm like, that's life. I'm one, not alone in it. One of the most uplifting things I ever saw the most miserable time of my life. I went and saw leaving Las Vegas and I came walking out of Piper's alley in Chicago and I was like, Ah, it's a beautiful fucking day in Chicago, man. Because I was, I was heartbroken and alone, drinking myself to sleep every night, miserable, scared, didn't know what the fuck was going on, was too scared to take improv classes. This was before I started taking them. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm in this giant city that doesn't give a shit about me. I don't know anybody. The only person I knew cheated on me and asked me to move out. And I'm alone. What the fuck? And I went and saw this movie and went, wow, somebody gets it. <laughs> you know, and I felt better. And it, and it was, I would go to Kingston Mines and I would go to Blues or Blues, etc. Blues, etc. was on Belmont, was a bigger club. And I would go watch Chief Eddie Clearwater or one of these fucking guys wailing the blues all night long. And I'd just sit there going, Yeah, all right, I'd feel better. That's fine. I wish I would have taken advantage of more blues in Chicago. I mean, I saw some great stuff, yeah. but I was like, Fuck, I should have gone. Ever, like, I should have been out seeing shit. Yeah, then but it's, it's like, the same thing being here where, you know, if you left here and moved to Kansas, you go, why didn't I go to the beach every day? <laughs> there were hot chicks out at the beach. And it's like, yeah, because the parking sucks because there's weirdos and homeless guys and panhandlers and tourists and fucking hot sun and wind and true overpriced coffee. Do you, uh, we're at time. Damn. Do you have anything you want to? Yeah, anything you could plug, your Twitter, any of that stuff? Yeah, I'm at back at all. B-A-K-K-E-D-A-H-L. Uh, I try to participate as much <laughs> as I can, but I'm really more of a stalker on uh, on Twitter. I just love to to watch. Because when I get into arguments, I, I can't oh, get I out. Do that. I can't get out. Yeah. And there's people who are baiting you, so I, that I don't... Oh, yeah. I can't get... Yeah, that's the other thing. I already have rage problems. Yeah. Is What is the dad boner thing going to be called? Because that's the dad boner Twitter feed that got famous. Well, I, don't I don't know if that the, they're going to air that or any of that. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I know that right now it's called dad boner. I don't know anything else. Um, I know it's supposed to be Comedy Central if it happens. And, um, and that's that for now, man. I already plugged legit six times. <laughs> you know, like I said, it's only because I love it. I wouldn't do it just to make money off it. Any... 
is that getting sort of revived from well, FX? Well, here's the thing. Because FX will turn shit into shows again. And yeah, say, our or, fan uh, base, Net- Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, our fan base includes uh, Norman Lear. Holy and, shit. And um, one of the writers. Did you meet Norman Lear? No, Jim did. When the show got canceled, and I know we got to quit, but no, we when the show it. got canceled, Jim got contacted by Norman Lear. And he said, Norman Lear, Norman Lear? And they said, yeah. And so he gets a hold of Norman Lear, and Norman Lear goes, I want to have a lunch and talk about the future of legit. Holy and Jim calls fuck. me up and goes, fucking Norman Lear wants to meet and talk about legit. Well, Norman Lear wanted to meet and talk about legit because he likes Jim's comedy and he liked legit. That's it. You know what I mean? It's like he sat, down, he sat down with IFC and they said, we love the show. We think the show is brilliant. We already have a show like it with Marin. It's a show about a comic, a grumpy comic who, you know, is trying to make it in the world as a grumpy comic. And here you are with your show. Um, and we don't necessarily make a habit of picking up old shows. But when season two comes out on Netflix, if it does well, we may consider it. Now, who fucking knows? I mean, you know, you hear these things, and, and Jim may have heard it wrong. They may have said it wrong. It may have been a person who's not in a position to say that. But my feeling is, unlike improv, which I love, and I feel a great sense of success when you do it well, and you go, man, that was a good show, and that's it. It'll never live again. Even if you recorded it, it's not going to be the same. It doesn't work. This fucking thing lives forever. It's there, you know? And they'll never be able to cancel the success that we accomplished on set and through edit and so forth. Right. So it's something good that I can point to other than my kids and say, this is something good that I did. That's going to last, you know? Um, so I don't know if something happens, if it doesn't, whatever. Um, and I also feel like, remember that one great year you had at summer camp and you go, I can't wait to fucking come back to summer camp. And you come back and you go, Oh man, her boobs are too big now. And, this cabin smells like piss and that guy keeps jerking off in his bunk and I don't like camp anymore. So who knows, you know, maybe it's just better being the great thing that it was for two years. All right. That's a great way to end. Thank you, Dan Bacchanal. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to conversations with Matt Dwyer. As I forgot to mention on the top, go to my website, themattdwyer.com. Go to my f- page at feralaudio.com. Go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page. Use the Amazon link. Use that anytime you buy something and I get a kickback of that money. And uh, maybe you can help me uh, you know, support my baby and my diapers. Or just donate money. Or, and uh, follow me on Twitter. All things that you need to know about me are on themattdwyer.com. Thank you. I love you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.